0: It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Andrew.
1: Hello, Mister
0: Kalouse. How are you? I'm good. Good. Hey, I've been uh, I've been on the internet watching the Access Funds Media. And uh, I, I have a question for you. What's
1: the internet? I've never heard of it.
0: It's real life. We we actually live in virtual <laughs> life here um, on the outside. But uh, I, I've been wondering if it's as bad as it seems.
1: Um, real life or the access fund or what? What's as the, bad?
0: Um, the alerts, the things they've been mm-hmm. saying about climbing becoming illegal, LCAP getting chopped, maybe even just torn down altogether. I think that... It's actually
1: underselling the the issue. Really? Um, yeah, I think that there's like some real, just to be serious, there's some real concerning things going around our government right now, and the National Park Service and the U.S. Forest Service. There, there's two draft proposals for climbing management guidance that would basically outlaw bolting, as far as I can tell, and potentially give cover to remove all bolts from. Mm-hmm all of our climbs in national parks and in on forest service land or in any wilderness area. So I think it's a pretty serious issue that's happening right now.
0: Well, back it up though. Isn't it, isn't this to do with the, the wilderness designation? So it, it, it's, it is specifically towards wilderness areas. Uh, It
1: would utilize the language in the, in the wilderness act of prohibiting installate quote unquote installations it would take that language and essentially apply it to bolts. Bolts are now okay. installations, and therefore prohibited. Now there's a there's um a, a process called a minimum requirements analysis or an MRA uh, for these kinds of prohibited uses, and that that's like this kind of loophole that allows you know the land managers to like install a fence or put in a road or. You know, whatever it needs to be done, um, mm-hmm. it's they, it, they subject it to this process called minimum requirements analysis that would just ensure that everything is that's being built or going into these protected areas would, you know, would be in accordance with kind of broader wilderness principles. And so bolts would fall under that, but I mean, you can imagine having to do an MRA for every bolt you want to place or
0: replace and
1: just what a nightmare that would be.
0: It's, it's kind of like, I wonder where it's all coming from. Like Mm -hmm. it, you know, I, I often reference Candylands where a specific superintendent had a definite sort of, you know, stick up his ass about climbing and banned bolts and, and anchors a long, long time ago, but it was very specific to him. And now it's basically like, you know, it's written in stone, pun intended, um, that you can't put anchors in there, even though that person is long gone. And so, I I kind of always wonder where these things come from because the management of such a thing goes against the the cry that you know that these services are underfunded. The park service is underfunded. The forest service is underfunded. Certainly, the BLM. I don't know if they're involved in this in any way. I don't I don't think they generally manage mm-hmm. those areas. But they're always talking about how there's nobody to do the patrolling and to to you know get things done and yet this would open this like incredibly gigantic bureaucratic process Mm -hmm. you know and and there's even i thought talk of them reviewing going and reviewing previously installed anchors and bolts which is you know in the thousands if not tens of thousands yeah for sure the, the thing again is i'm not exactly sure of the scope it was my understanding that it that we're talking about wilderness areas in particular a wilderness area and a and a national park are not synonymous um, because they're using the language of the wilderness act which applies to wilderness areas and not necessarily to front country areas in forest service or in national parks but i suppose there's always that grind thing that happens with this stuff where this is this is first wave if they're if they if they've got a problem with bolts that you know it'll it'll spread to to other poss- possibilities so this like, is pa- only parts of Joshua Tree are wilderness, only parts of of Yosemite. Unfortunately, uh, whatever few hundred feet off the ground is on El Cap is considered wilderness. So all yeah. the routes on El Cap would be subject to this review or yep. the possibility of being illegal.
1: Yeah, so it says here on the Access Fund website, existing wilderness fixed anchors are de facto prohibited but may be retained if the agency finds funding and resources to conduct MRAs like those people are going to go out of their way to do that. However, existing wilderness uh, wilderness fixed anchors may be removed if they're determined to no longer be quote the minimum necessary to facilitate primitive and unconfined recreation or otherwise preserve wilderness character. And it's, it says iconic longstanding climbing routes may be removed to places like Joshua tree, Rocky mountain Zion and, and Yosemite.
0: That's crazy.
1: It's crazy. It's super crazy, and it's like a lot of these routes that could potentially be removed would be routes that precede the Wilderness Act, and so they're you know old historic routes and climbs and stuff. And I just find this whole uh, conversation to be annoying because I have, I I feel like the um, the claim that bolts are incompatible with wilderness to just be one that's worth knocking down. Or I just don't, I don't abide by, or I don't agree with that. If climbing is is allowed in wilderness, then I think bolts should be allowed as well because climbing and bolts go together. Like I understand the process like of putting bolts in, you're using power tools or you're using, you know, drills and stuff. And it seems like this kind of violent, you know, uh, thing that happens on this pristine nature landscape, you know, natural landscape, but bolts are so tiny and inert and they don't harm any of the animal life or, you know, and in fact, if you're, you know, if you compare like tatted anchors around boulders or trees or something like that compared to just like two, two bolts with um, rings on them, you know, the bolts are are far less impactful on, on, uh, you know, critters and and other wilderness things. So I, I feel like we're going to continue to have these attacks on bolting in, these areas in, unless we can come up with a strong defense for why bolts are compatible with wilderness, which I think they are.
0: It goes back to also trying to define climbing that way mm-hmm. as something that's compatible with those ethics that go with wilderness areas and you know there is a there is a devil's advocate kind of argument um, which you have to you have to address you know that goes with the fact that you know this this is a sl- an exception for a user group. And I think also the devil's advocacy is, is that traditionally we don't um, ask permission and we don't consult and we don't accept any sort of oversight on this ability to go out into these places and, and change them, albeit in this very small way, in our opinion. Well, so I don't know how we sort of I know, I know, that's I know. That's what they hate and that's Look, the
1: reason that all these that <laughs> these um, proposals keep getting brought up is because right. people see a, a like an a user group doing what they want and they're like we can't have that like what the fuck is going on like these guys need to come to us and ask permission this is our jurisdiction you know and mm-hmm. but the the issue is is that those people can't control climbing they they don't have the Um, understanding of the sport or the interest in, in, um, you know, exploration and new development and new routes. And there's like just a misalignment of, um, interests and values there that would just make it impossible for them to have any kind of jurisdiction over how climbing gets developed. Like, do you really want chip from the NPS office, you know, making the calls on how many bolts are too many bolts on your route or whether this needs anchors or not. Obviously you don't because he doesn't know what he's talking about. And (laughs) it has to be, I mean, it has to come from the climbing community and they have to be able to make those decisions themselves.
0: There's been pushes like this recently in Joshua Tree. There's been pushes like this down in the Black Canyon from more of the local sort of management of those areas and those parks, especially in the Black. And it's actually created this big rift between sort of the higher up bureaucracy and the climbing rangers down in the black. Mm-hmm. Um, if you guys get online, you can, you can find some information where recently the climbing rangers were locked out of their cache on the North rim. And this had more to do with like budget cuts and things, but um, arrived to do a rescue down there and, and were literally unable to get into the rescue cache because the superintendent had, had had it locked up without actually telling them. Um, so there's all these conflicts going on even within the ranks of, of these organizations between the climbing rangers in some cases and the, and the sort of higher ups. And I would imagine that a lot of the climbing rangers in Yosemite are chafing against this because they're going to be like, if this goes down, they're going to be the brunt of, uh, of sort of the civil disobedience that I will advocate right. um, and will be happening from the climbers. And, and it's just going to basically like poison the entire scene in in the national parks, especially in a place like Yosemite or Josh or, or the black, you know,
1: that's one, um, one thing you said there, that's really important, which the access fund highlights on their site here is that they don't have the funds to, you know, implement this mandate. And this, so this would be an, uh, you know, on, it's not asking for money to like put this into effect. It's simply saying that this is the new law and yeah, this is a complex and resource intensive, Mandate that they would have like to to manage every single bolt that goes into every single piece of rock and and these giant landscapes. And um, it just obviously would be a setup for failure or be a moratorium basically on on climbing development.
0: There's got to be individuals and certainly the superintendent of the Black Canyon is probably one of them. But there's individuals sort of rattling for this. Um, And I I, I just find it really interesting. And I would love to know who it is. Because I think, by and large, the the services who've gotten along with this copacetically for the last 60 years or however long it's been aren't necessarily interested in, like I said, creating this this animosity, this war. Because if it's not something you can implement, then it's simply an ideal. And it's an ideal set out to, to create conflict. You know what I mean? It's like that's kind of its purpose if it's not actually something that they can actually do anything about.
1: I agree. And uh, I I'm, I'm I'm be curious to know like who the who the dark mastermind is like spearheading <laughs> this.
0: What's the guy in Star Wars? Palpatine. The Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> It's somebody out there. Something you, you know? said um, just sparked this like dystopian
1: uh, vision that I just had about the government paying like some of our n- most notorious bolt choppers like Ken Nichols to like just go rem- wholesale remove <laughs> crags like that would be <laughs> there'd be like a whole army of just like antisocial climbing losers who right are on the government's mo- <laughs> you know dime getting paid you know hundred thousand dollars a year to just chop bolts.
0: Well, here's the other thing that could happen is that. You know, like these fire, these wild and firefighters over the years that have set fires so they could go be paid to go put them out. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. You know, just like putting roots up, (laughs) reporting that root, and then being like, "If you give me ten grand, I'll go fucking pull it for you." You know, just like every couple months. You know, you're like, I'm out of money. I'm like in Patagonia. I'm out of money. I'm gonna go bolt something and (laughs) And then chop it, (laughs) and then and then get paid to chop it. Be super stoked. (laughs) Just. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of it's sort of bonkers, but the other thing that also brings up this other problem and I know I've I've like harped on this before, but like you know, I was giving those sort of devil's advocate arguments, you know, for the sake of preparing for them in a sense, but if you're climbers and you also, you know, this whole faction of climbing that's anti-bolt um or anti-anchors. I mean, I guess there's probably like a dozen climbers who who honestly never clip fixed anchors in their entire climbing career mm-hmm. but i don't care if you're a track i mean you know every route in in indian creek has at least two bolts on it like mm-hmm. that's just the way they are so it's like those people out there siding with this you know or like bitching about bolts you know and, and saying that we deserve this or, or anything else it's like time to shut the fuck up and, yeah i mean i don't need to go off on it again like have your debates in your living room with your sport climbing friends, but like, shut the fuck up. It's time to pull ranks, Yeah, you know, circle the wagons and, and, and deal with this because this is climbing. Like this is the, you know, like all of climbing, not just sport climbing. That's, that's ta- that we're talking about here because, uh, you know, these, these mandates include any fixed anchors, like again, anything that's left there so it's it's the slings with the with the crummy little ring on it it's it's all of that stuff so mm-hmm. climbing doesn't really work in those areas without it yeah i couldn't agree more so either be quiet or get on board with with trying to get this stopped
1: yeah i mean it is a hard thing to defend and it but i think it is worth trying to do so because like you said without it like there's just it would just close down so much so many of our roots and um we can't let that happen Chris
0: <laughs> you know the other vision I have the dystopian vision you know it's like armed guards like patrolling the base of El Cap and you know just like the total like dark future where there's like these shock troops that come in, in uh, and uh enrage your camp if you've got like bolting equipment in a wilderness area and stuff like that and and um but I did just <laughs> talk to um and it's funny I I, I did just talk to uh Kurt Smith, he's going to be on the NormaCast coming up this month, I think. And, uh, you know, very famous incident with the big sting operation of him and Scott Cosgrove on top of El Cap Mm -hmm. because they had a power drill with them. Mm -hmm. So there is, you know, there is this future where there's like these, these like sting operations by LE officers about uh, fixed anchors out there in the wilderness. And I just can't imagine any like rank and file ranger wants to fucking deal with that. Do they want to deal with that?
1: Do you think that there's enough um, of a dissident spirit among the youth climbers of today? Are they I going hope to be so. the bulwark against? Or are they going to be put up the fight that we need? Uh, should this, actually should this the amount of
0: internet scolding you get for like stepping on a blade of grass? <laughs> um, I don't fucking think so. I think they're just going to roll over, man. And that's just isn't that the way of of these, <laughs> these autocracies that come in. I mean the people do just finally lay down for it and take it. So yeah, I, I'm not I'm not super confident that that's gonna happen. So I well, mean I'm gonna get you know, we'll get scolded for this, probably.
1: Maybe we can start a clinic on uh dissidents and climbing. <laughs> Ooh
0: <laughs> No, I mean you know who can do we that could. is Schulte. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <I> Chris Schulte <laughs> yeah. would be he'll he be an instructor. In charge of it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We'll have a rave in the desert. In, He'll uh, just
0: be like, "Here's here's your pissed off face. Let's work on that today." Like he's the master of that.
1: Resting. Bitch How do you face. express
0: your disdain? Yeah, you look at this face right now. Today's lesson is side eye.
2: <laughs>
0: Mary Eden is a climber currently from Moab, Utah and is perhaps best known for her popular Instagram profile, Trad Princess. But she is also one of the best desert crack climbers in the business, recently sending Black Mamba, a 514B roof crack, under the white rim of Canyonlands. Yeah, so I follow your social media pretty closely, Mary, aka Trad Princess. Um, that's sort of in a way, weird way, how don't we met, call me that. I know, but I just saying for our listeners, that's your, that's your, your Instagram handle. Um, it's sort of how we met. It's kind of how I noticed you the first time and, and then, um, got together and talked on, uh, the other podcast, but it's also like kind of the only way I know all this hard stuff you're sending, because I don't feel like you get coverage. I don't feel like there's a lot of information about Climbs that you do, and this time around that you sent your most recent project. Um, I feel like that's kind of a travesty that th- it went by on your Instagram. And then I don't know, have, have people wanted to talk to you about this incredible climb that you did and um, its difficulty or anything like that? Because that's what I, I mean, that's what we're here to do. And I, I feel like, you know, as soon as I saw that you sent, I'm like, that seems like an incredible story and I want to hear it. But have other people gotten in touch? Are you like flying so low under the radar that? Nobody knows what's going on.
3: You reached out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so do you count
0: people? Mm-hmm. I count. <laughs> so
3: that's We're, that's the that's most important climbing out. media. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: You're Crystallis. starting at the top here. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Top tier. I'm very good at spraying on social media, but I'm not very good at spraying like out of that. I am writing an article for um, climbing, but it's more about like how to climb in the White Rim. Um, okay. And it'll be like a brief, a brief <laughs> kind of journey into projecting Necro and Black Mamba. I think it it's it's a place that deserves more attention. I don't know if traffic is the right word, but definitely deserves more attention. I just wish more women climbed down there.
1: Let's like just fill in some of the details for mm-hmm. listeners. So what's... We wandered also, into that one. Yeah, we kind of wandered in. Like, what's this route? It's You did a Black Mamba. It's a wide boys route. Five fourteen B, and so I think Chris is kind of leading in, like, very gently leading into the idea that it's not all that common to, you know, see a, a female or really any climber climb a five fourteen trad route. And so it kind of felt like it went under the radar in a way that was not representative of climbing media's best foot forward. So, just tell us about the route and like what, what how hard it is and and where it is and and how you got involved in this in this uh, crack climb.
3: So Black Mamba, it's a 14B, 50 meter route. It's a very weird route because it starts as a boulder problem and ends as a roped climb. Just because it, it's basically, did you guys ever see the movie of Tremors with Kevin Bacon back in the day?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It's of like course. climbing a, a Tremors hole, a very long Tremors hole. And as, <laughs> as you come out of the hole, it gets steeper and gets to that height where you can't boulder it anymore. And it also uh, ends in an off with And so <laughs> it's a really cool route because it has every size. There's three thin cruxes. Two of them are fingers. You're just doing like finger locks horizontally, and it's crazy. The third, uh, well, the middle thin crux is like a more of a Necronomicon style thin crux. It's like big ring locks and paddle hands. Then the ending has a crux of getting uh, from hands into an invert off with, and then doing an invert off with until the finish. So it's, it's full variety. Between each of these cruxes, there is a bit of mercy in that it's like hands and fists and like big cups. So it is nice in between the things, but it's just long. <laughs> and the hard bits kind of come at you at the end, like back to back to back with like a brief hand bit in between. So by the time you get 40 meters in, you're just knackered, you're tired and you still have to do the hardest thin crux and the off width. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Black Mamba was the dirtiest thing I've ever experienced. It was so sandy (laughs) and dirty and it had only been freed, you know, twice, like, Years ago, I would say I probably spent the first two sessions just cleaning it with a toilet brush and like, you know, taking like a small hammer and like getting rid of the chips that would like come off in your eyes when you were climbing um, on the like the outside of the crack. And then I think the biggest thing was the first day trying to remove all the spiders because there was hordes of spiders (laughs) um, in there. And I was just like in the cave. And I put like a hat on um, and it was in the dark. And So this was I like was just uh, like... <laughs> like the start
0: of um, Raiders of the Lost Dark is what you're yeah. saying.
3: Remember when yeah, he's got all was... the
0: spiders on his back? Dude,
3: <laughs> yes, that's what it was like. There were so many spiders everywhere and I was just whacking them with a broom because before climbing this route, I was actually having nightmares about having to deal with the spiders because the first time I looked at it, there was a, just an obscene amount of spiders. And I was like, how am I going to solve the spider problem? and and I came up with a broom idea (laughs) of just like just sweeping them away and so I was all for it I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna sweep out the spiders it's gonna be fine and then I go into the cave into the darkness and I start sweeping them and they're like landing on me and I start screaming and I'm like (laughs) completely irrationally acting like a scared girl and the thing is I don't know if those spiders were poisonous or not. I did not recognize what they were and I did not want to ask questions because they started running from me in the broom. So after like a day or two of the broom, they they like moved away. But there was they were just there. You did not leave your shoes like out unless you wanted spiders in your shoes. Like you zipped them up in a bag. It was gnarly, just in the dark screaming, fighting the spiders with my broom. <laughs> It was horrible. (laughs) Black Mamba is the cleanest it's ever been right now because of how much cleaning I did. (laughs) So if you want to send it, go do it now. There's significantly less spiders. (laughs) I don't know how tea that is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I look watching the pictures and having seen these roots down there. They, they, you know, it's like a roof crack in this, in the sedimentary layer that then erodes underneath into these, almost these tunnels, as you were talking about, on um, the mm-hmm. tremors hole. So you're in there horizontal bouldering. What, what are the like rope logistics of how oh. you lead something like that? Cause that, I think that's kind of fascinating and people yeah. need to go to your, go to your social media to check it out. And there's, there's also some information on the internet where, when, um, Tom and Pete did it. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting to go look at it because it's not like any climb, you know, anywhere. I don't think it's like the no, crack house turned unique. into a root sort of a thing.
3: It's crack house on top of crack house, on top of crack house, on top of crack house, on top of crack house with an off width at the end of it with finger right. cracks. It's, it's insane. <laughs> I feel like Necronomicon is crack house on steroids, Black Mamba is Necronomicon on steroids. And so it's like, it's so much more and and you don't really understand how much more it is until you actually go there because I've told my friends about it and sprayed of course but I've gotten a lot of people to go down there with me and every time they go into the cave for the first time they're like what the hell this keeps going whoa like it's fully dark in the inside of there and you start all scrunched up so when I was paying attention to how Tom and Pete did it they roped up middle of the climb you know they had their partner tie them in and the partner handed them the gear um which is efficient but i was thinking that i didn't want to be held in place for long like i didn't want faff i didn't want someone to like tie my knot and take too long or like pull my hip or like any of that weirdness so what we did is i tied into the rope from the start and my partner We put my rope in a purse, in my purse, (laughs) and he put the purse on his shoulder and just dragged the pads along until it got too high, and I was already on belay with the grigri. He put me on at the start. I was already tied in, and then he just handed me the cams when I was like, all right, give me the cams. It's time to go. (laughs) A few twos, threes, uh, five, and a few sevens. So, it's how long is weird. that?
1: Is that first part? How many feet?
3: It's a guess, but it is a big portion of the route. If I could guess, I would say probably thirty-five meters. I didn't before you I even didn't... start,
1: like do, you know, the rope, quote unquote, roped part.
3: Yeah, and then the last fifteen meters is roped. Got it. Yeah, Crazy. and uh, it's it's a weird route. It's just weird. Uh, so I don't even know if it's like a trad climb. It's I feel like it's more of a mixed climb. You know, it's a boulder trad climb. I guess it is a trad climb because the point of roping up is not at the ground, break your legs. So you use the rope to not break your legs. Yeah. You just do a really, really long sit start. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, there. I mean, there's like a huge precedent with that, or not a huge, but there is a precedent with that kind of style. You know, it's not that common, but the, the Alibaba cave has that same thing where basically you do all the hard climbing and then you clip two bolts and then you've you've done a 15B or whatever Alibaba is.
3: This one, the hardest climbing comes at the end. Well, at least for me, that's where it was because Tom and Pete said the first thin crux was their hardest bit, but I got that one the first day I was on it. I didn't feel like it was hard. I think it just suited my style of climbing. I had a nightmare on the last thin crux. That one, I would climb 40 meters in and just get shut down right there. I could do the problem individually, but I couldn't link it in. So I just eat shit there. I eat shit there a lot.
1: (laughs) So how long did this route take you?
3: It took me two and a half weeks. I went at it pretty aggressive. It probably would have taken me less time if I had been smarter. I went at it two days on, one day off for two weeks. And one day of recovery just wasn't enough. And so I ended up sending it when I took two days off. And also, a lot of those two weeks, I was being really silly by not paying attention to the temperature it was, there was a week in Moab in the fall where it was like above 80 degrees. And that cave is so smarmy and sweaty. And you get into the finger bits towards the end and you just grease out. You just, they're just not good conditions. And I was trying to work it in those conditions. And I realized (laughs) when I actually sent. I did so because I looked at the temperature for the day (laughs) and I was like, oh, it's going to be Seventy-five degrees by eleven a.m. That's too hot. I needed it to be under sixty-five, so I made sure I was climbing it uh, around sunrise, and I did it.
0: Did, haven't you learned anything from climbing with with Tom and Pete? I mean, they know how to project things.
3: <laughs> I know. I'm just. I mean,
0: it worked, right? Two and a half weeks is not a, a huge commitment. Had you just done Nakramanamanamanakan this fall too, or was that last year?
3: That was last fall. Yeah.
0: Oh, it was last um, fall. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that one, that one you can get away with not being so specific because it is easier. It is 13D slash 14A. And I just honestly, I think I've been getting away with like good enough conditions for so long. And I'm like, oh, it's good enough conditions. It's it's not like boiling or, you know, oh, it's it's okay. I'll just muscle fuck it. Like, and I've gotten away with that for a long time. <laughs> And I feel like Black Mamba was the first time in my climbing that I had to actually look at the specific temperature, not just a range, being like, I want it to be 63 degrees and... Like, I felt like a diva. I'm like, I'm waking up at 6am. I'm going to eat my breakfast, take my shit in the wag bag, <laughs> and, you know, warm up for 10 minutes and sit down for 20 minutes. Like, it was just so specific by that point. That was just not my style. I'm more of like machine gun spray. I'm like, ba. I'm going to try it until I get it. Or... Climb like a rabid squirrel, and like maybe I can Sorry, can we just like dwell
1: older? on muscle fucking something? Because I've never heard that <laughs> term before. Like, what what is the what what, what exactly invo- goes into muscle fucking a root.
3: <laughs> um, it is the way I rock climb. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not I'm not a very talented rock climber. I'm just weirdly good at muscle fucking my way through things. <laughs> And you're just like what does that mean and it's just like it's just like climb really inefficiently but don't let go and yeah
2: nice
1: okay i like that so,
3: yeah you just it's, when you don't you, do you anything could, with- you
1: could write a, a an article for climbing about how to muscle fuck like your top 10 tips for muscle fucking
0: root. training Trainingbeta.com <laughs> yeah. is awaiting your submission for the just for just the channel
3: just channel Popeye eat your spinach um um, and and just completely do things that are just inefficient and somehow surprise your friends um that's that's muscle fucking and surprise yourself you're like well that really I really should have came off like a lot there (laughs) but I didn't somehow I didn't (laughs) what am I gonna do it again no (laughs)
0: You know and and again, like the difficulty is a little bit belied by the two and a half week projecting, but of course, one other thing that is you know part of your your thing is definitely crack training on vicious crack machines. Tell us a little bit about that training and the apparatus, and how dedicated are you to that kind of training
3: so it's important to me, and this is maybe goes into like my own insecurities it's important for me not to waste people's time, so when I want to do something that's really hard i want to go into it as prepared as i can and i'll make the plans way ahead of time and i will prepare myself as well as i can in order to when i show up like do it within a reasonable amount of time you know because like going into the caves i want the same partner you just get in a flow you have fun and everything and it's just i don't want to like drag people down there over and over and over again for more than I need to. So for me, it was really important to go into this prepared. I train with Tom's um, training company, Lattice, and my coach, Jen. Um, I told her that I wanted to train for this route called Black Mamba. It was a 50-meter roof crack, and um, it was really fingery. And so to help me you know, prepare for that, and so I did a 12-week plan And I also sent her a message. uh, This is inappropriate, but I'm going to say it. (laughs) I said, I said, make my forearms so big that when men look at it, they don't want a hand job from me. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted scary forearms. (laughs) Nice. She did not reply for days. (laughs) I don't know if she knew how. So, she had
1: to she had to Google what how big those forums needed
0: to yeah. be and what she, their
1: search results scared her from replying back to
0: you or maybe if she if she's British maybe they have another yeah. word for it.
3: <laughs> I um, so yeah, it was pretty funny. And then I started the plan. I started it in the summer, and I briefly moved to Phoenix, um, Arizona, and. My crack, we were living in an apartment and my crack trainer is outside on the porch. And honestly, it was the worst experience for training ever. Like, training in Phoenix on a wooden crack trainer outside this summer was the absolute worst. Hornets, also, we broke a record for most amount of days over, I think what, I don't remember what the temperature was, but it was something ungodly. I was out there. Doing the three by tens and the four by fours with 116 degrees Fahrenheit, and I was putting like holes on my hands. No matter how much I taped up, I was putting holes in my feet. I hated. It was miserable. (laughs) Like it was so absolutely miserable. But I knew that if I didn't do it, if I didn't put the time in the roof crack, because the only real way to train for roof cracks is on roof cracks. Like you do weight training, you can you know do bouldering and everything like that, but you really do need to spend a good amount of time in roof crack to train for roof crack. And I knew if I just didn't suck it up and do it, I wouldn't do mamba. So did it. And I whined about it a lot. (laughs) and I'm still whining about it.
1: (laughs) I mean, you've kind of disparaged your technique. There's a (laughs) lot of technique that goes into crack climbing. I mean, you can't really you know muscle your way through things i i I don't know it's like an interesting uh spin or joke that you have on that i wonder how much of that is is grounded in truth or or how much of that is just like undercutting you know the amount of technique that's really involved with with climbing cracks because it's it is one of the you know you can muscle your way through a dyno or something like that like if it's a one move you know boulder problem but Crack climbing actually is one of the things that you really can't muscle your way through. You you, you need to have like perfect technique to do it. So I, I just want to call you out on your um, your self-deprecating way the, of, of describing your own climbing.
3: I think you're right. You're 100% right. There was actually a lot of technique that goes into that. And every one of those thin cruxes was a boulder problem, a crack boulder problem. So you do need to have a full range of skills to do that route you can't be like a one trick crack pony you can't just be an off with climber you can't just be a finger crack climber you have to you have to know how to climb all the sizes and climb them efficiently which is the key thing i think for me i just sucked at rock climbing for so long (laughs) that i just don't i don't know maybe you caught me (laughs) I just sucked for so long. (laughs) I feel like it took me six years to do my first 512, you know, and I don't know why. It's just I feel like rock climbing came really slowly to me. It just has never felt really natural. And Mm -hmm. so that's why maybe I feel like I muscle fuck things because it's like like some people and I teach rock climbing, which is ironic enough that I feel that way. Um, Some people that I teach or climb with, I see the way they move naturally and they move really beautifully, and it's really intuitive. Um, it's never been like that for me. Maybe that's where that disparaging like thought comes from.
0: Yeah, fair enough.
3: <laughs> do you, do you surround
0: I, yourself with with people that will pump you up or just agree with you. You should. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she's on this podcast,
0: Chris. I know you're just <laughs> like, yeah, I suck. Everybody's <laughs> like, you're right, you're right, Mary. <laughs> no well, argument for me. <laughs>
3: I mean a bit of both. Like my friends talk shit to me and I love it. It's 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 one of my love languages is the more they talk shit to me, like the more I love them.
0: Okay. Um
3: and that I that makes talk sense cuz I always you know? try to
0: pump you up on my when we have oh. little message exchanges and you always kind of like bat it away. You're just like, "Yeah, but you." Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, but I'm like, "You just climbed like one of the hardest thing any woman's ever climbed." You're like, uh-huh, whatever." Like <laughs> Now I know how to do this. I'm okay from now.
3: (laughs) I am I am abysmal at taking compliments. I I struggle with it. I really struggle with it. The best thing you could do to me is like insult me, and then I'll climb harder, and I'll be like, fuck you." (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't know why. Maybe I'm just a little a little weird.
1: Well, you should get used to it because um you. Got a bunch of accomplishments under your belt, and I'm sure more are to come I'd love to know just like about the you know the kind of crack scene that you're immersed into. How did you get involved in that and what drew you in and it's just um you're I'd say you're part of a cohort of of folks who are really psyched on the creek and on you know the desert broadly so give us a little uh taste of what that scene is like
0: and also a cohort that like includes um, at least in the last few years, a real sort of surge of women, you know, climbing hard and and putting up these amazing routes or or repeating really hard routes, um, which you know, at least in the distant past, was a little bit unusual. But it's kind of like the norm now. And you, I think, were part of the group that really has put it on on the on the map as far as something that you know, groups of women are just out there having a great time and and um, and climbing cracks.
3: I mean, it happened organically for me. I hate competition. I don't like competing with people. I really thrive on partnerships. Whenever I feel like my partner has sent something, I feel like I've sent it. And I really get off on that. I, I love it. Um, and so I feel like because of that, it's been really organic to have these friendships. It's because it's like, I'm not competing with any of them. I'm just really happy to be around them and when you have that energy and you bring that energy to people like they want you there during their process you know and they're willing to share their top ropes and you know they'll invite you out to do things um so it's it's happened pretty organically um and I also really like all these women because I feel like they're just so much more than the rock climbs they do they're so fucking cool beyond rock climbing and you, you try to tell people that because inevitably rock climbers get injured and like you can't go rock climbing or life happens. You got to get a job or whatever. And it's just like, it's like, yo, dude, you were so cool. And I just want to go hang out with you. And like, you're cool even without doing this route. Right. And so I, I think by like having that attitude and that belief system, I'm able to have like really cool women in my life. Because, um, yeah, I just want to be around them. And In, inevitably, when you meet somebody really awesome, they have somebody really awesome. And then so it's just kind of like grows. You know, I always tell this to people I teach rock climbing to. I always say, water your flowers, not your weeds, you know, pour your energy into like really good, positive people and good, positive people bring more good, positive people.
0: And what about the draw of cracks? Like why, why there versus some other medium Um, not just for you, but for this cohort?
3: Oh, I was talking about this with Mason last spring. We went on a hike and we were talking about how much we love cracks. And I have always struggled to put a reason why I love them so much, besides the fact that I find them so absolutely beautiful. And the way Mason described it, he said that cracks are they look like they've been created by a master craftsman of nature and you approach them with what you have. Like you didn't create it. It was already there. You know, a master craftsman created this perfect thing and you have to go to it and see if you can bring what it takes to complete it in the style that you know, is decided by like the sport of rock climbing. You know, like can you send it? <laughs> um, you know, just finding like the natural line that the landscape gives you. I think is really beautiful. It's really hard for me to look, you know, at a wall and see a splitter and not just get very titillated. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I just like the way they look. <laughs> I love the way they look. I love the way they look. Whatever angle they are, I like when they're overhung. I like when they're horizontal, like when they're vertical. When they're
1: a Kevin Bacon worm tunnel.
3: (laughs) When they're a Kevin Bacon worm tunnel. I love them. Um, I even like them in corners. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I love the way they look. And I I don't care what size they are either. Um, A lot of people label me as an off with climber. And I'm like, nah, I mean, it's because I just love cracks. And I'm willing to climb any size crack and like especially if it's an interesting crack if it's like it's got a weird angle um or a weird size like i'm especially interested in it or if it's long i love that i love long cracks are are beautiful it's i don't i don't know if i've really like understood why i like them so much i like all forms of rock climbing just because i enjoy rock climbing you know i'll go sport climbing all summer and you know wyoming have a good time i might pick a project or get stoked or something. I love bouldering, but I would say I never care that much about all those things. Like I do cracks. Like, I really care a lot.
1: What's your reference point for I mean, you don't have to like tell us how hard you've climbed sport routes or whatever, but like, how do you, do you feel like there's, you, you have a solid base of understanding, you know, the, the YDS difficulty rating outside of cracks like do you you feel like you can you have the experience of like knowing what I don't know 14b sport route feels like versus a crack climb because there's such different things that the I, I yeah I often scratch my head at trying to figure out how those two ratings like kind of mean the same thing
3: yeah I feel like it's it's hard that they mean the same thing. <clears throat> I almost feel like it does a disservice to everyone. My sport grade is significantly lesser than my uh trad grade. um It's just because I don't sport climb as much like I just don't put in the time. I don't put in the effort. I always consider sport climbing like a vacation um so like my thirtieth birthday, I'm like i wanna go on vacation and go to Puerto Rico, go sport climbing like it's always a vacation for me, whereas trad goals or even crackles. It's not even just crack. It's just like trad is more of like, this is business. And so I climb enough sport to basically do my goals on trad. Uh, I call it, um, I call sport climbing, eating my vegetables. Um, <laughs> for Necronomicon, a way that I prepared for it was by going sport climbing for six weeks. And I was like, I just want to get in the habit of moving dynamically. I want to just be happy with taking big falls and, and moving dynamically and just going for it, being punchy. And I feel like trad climbing is usually like static and controlled. And so I always think it's important to keep sport climbing in in my diet so I can keep my dynamic movement. But yeah, I don't think 14B sport compares to 14B crack or trad. It's just so very different mentally. When I asked about the grade, because I was talking about this with Tom, uh, he told me that Necro should be my first 14A in 2020, because he had seen the way I'd kind of been climbing, and it was right around when I met you, actually. It was when I went to go scout Necro. He was like, it's time for you to like do a 14, and you should do this one. It would suit your experience. It would suit your climbing. And when I did it last fall, I was like, what is the grade? Like, it has this slash grade. What does that mean? And it basically... He told me that um, I guess the men were afraid that somebody could hand jam the crux and downgrade it, so that's why it has the slash grade. And I'm like, oh, okay. So the way I understood it, it's like if you can hand jam the crux, it's 13D. If you can't hand jam the crux, it's 14A. And luckily for me, I could not hand jam the crux, so (laughs) I was like, yay!
1: So their fragile male egos are spared the 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 vicious downgrade. (laughs)
3: But yeah, it it is one of those routes like that's like a hard thing to downgrade it because that crux is about 10 feet long on Necro. Um, It is greens. If you have green hands, it's a big it's a way different route for you to just hand jam through it versus like horizontally ring walking. And it's like two different experiences, not even you know, I know we experience this a little bit with like pre-grades when um, you see people with thin hands get on like 11s and then people with bigger hands feeling happier on 10s. We see Wait, a who has bit green there. hands? A lot of people do. Really? Yeah.
0: That's yeah. a very small Some hand. Yeah, but I was going to say, it's funny you say that, Andrew, because I was like going to ask Mary, I'm like, how do you not have green hands? Because I'm not a big person.
3: <laughs> I'm built like my dad. I'm stocky.
0: Okay. All I have right. very
3: muscular palms. <laughs> I have short hands. I have short hands. <laughs> and short your and trainer's
1: width. like, we can do this forearm thing that you've, you're asking for. It's, yeah. It's not a hard lift.
3: <laughs> Tom said I was lucky because I can palms. put on muscle easy for a woman. <laughs> but um, no, it's mostly, it's mostly, I feel like, My hands are muscular from guiding for eight years and also crack climbing a lot and tried climbing a lot. Like they're not delicate, thin things anymore. They used to be, but that changed and it could be inflammation (laughs) or it could be muscle. Who
0: knows?
3: (laughs) Like they're, they've definitely changed. Like My fingers don't even point straight anymore, which is a nice uh, symptom of finger cracks,
0: (laughs) So let me ask you a little bit about your relationship with Tom Randall and Pete Whitaker. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you fall in with those cats? You <laughs> sort of become like kind of their one of their liaisons, if you will, their partners and and crash pad and everything here in the states when they're in the Moab area. At least when you used to live there, um, and now you still meet up with them when you can. So talk a little bit about that. And if it in in you know you mentioned them, uh, Tom like influencing you to get on uh, that route down on the White Rim. Uh so, what else have you sort of learned from them and what do you think you impart to to those guys that uh they can grow from
3: i don't know if I can teach them anything they're too good. <laughs> maybe I taught Tom to drink water because he never drinks enough water <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's what i've done um I think I met them, and I think it was twenty seventeen Um, a friend of mine, Matt Farrell, um, sent me a message asking if his friends, Tom and Pete could crash at my house for the month. And I was like, "Mm, I don't really know these people. Like I didn't realize it was Tom and Pete, you know, wide boys. And I was like, I don't really know these people, but they're your friends. So yeah, of course we'll figure it out. And I kind of just like, at some point realized it was Tom and Pete, the wide boys. And I, um, realized they were coming to my really shitty trailer. So I bailed on a day of climbing to clean it. (laughs) And they stayed pretty much every season at my house until COVID when nobody could travel. And I moved to Arizona. And then uh, when traveling was allowed again in 2021, Tom came to Arizona and stayed with me there for about a month. We've just kept in constant climbing proximity since they first came to crash and I went over to UK and visited and climbed over there for just a little bit and yeah there's I moved back to Moab they're at my house right now in the kitchen actually I think my favorite thing about besides you know of course how much I love them both but my favorite thing is that they have brought Mari into my life which is really cool she's really cool we climbed and off with today called the cleaver and we did a team send and it was hard as fuck so we're pretty psyched on that it's just like good people bringing more good people and then good people stick around it is convenient that i'm like every time they want to come over i'm like i'll pick you up from the airport like you can use my car come stay with me i'll play you do you need people to take pictures oh you got it cool (laughs) like i just i just want to spend time with them they're you know some of my closest friends when i first met them i hadn't even climbed my first five twelve. I think that had, like, happened um, around that same time. And it was – no, it actually hadn't even happened yet, actually. Tom came to stay, and Tom and Pete came to stay, and I decided I was going to climb my first 512. And so I roped my friend, Mercedes, into it. And I was like, we're going to train. We're going to get strong. We're going to do these things. And so I started like just training really inefficiently <laughs> and I was like doing jumping jacks and stuff. And Tom watched me, I think with like with, with a bit of horror <laughs> and he was like, do you really want to get stronger? I was like, yes. And so he wrote me out a plan and he was like, do this. And then I did it and I did my first five twelve, and then I did my first V6 and it was just like and then less than six months after that, I did my first 13. And so I was like, this shit works.
1: This is a geeky question, but I think listeners might, or at least a few might appreciate this, but you you kind of mentioned taking six years to get to 512 uh, or some thereabouts. And so, and then what was the, how many years did it take to go from 512 to 14B or whatever?
3: Um, Not that long. I think I would have to actually confirm by looking at my mountain project because I used to be pretty good at ticking things but i think it my first 512 was spring of 2017 okay i'm pretty sure my first 13 was so another 6 years to go that, from
1: 512 to 514 basically around yeah, that, around that yeah. amount
3: that's yeah that's interesting yeah 6 years dude that's not that long ago wait that's <laughs> time
1: <laughs> covid was a a time warp <laughs> that none of us have have fully yeah. processed
3: yeah and I think my first thirteen was that summer or that fall, and it was a roof crack. I've always loved roof cracks. I love overhung cracks, so it's like it was really natural for me
1: nice so you you've kind of referenced being a you know a teacher of crack climbing and a coach of some kind and what what do you notice about beginner crack climbers that are common mistakes and maybe points of self-doubt or uh, like how do, how do you approach that that process of teaching people to crack climb because um chris and i have a, a little bit of experience there but i'd love to hear your your take on what what you do what's your what's your methodology for bringing people up to speed
3: i feel like the biggest mistake that i see people bring to the table when they want to learn crack climbing is a lack of curiosity when people have like predetermined opinions or um I don't enjoy that I don't like that I don't like that size I don't like this I'm not good at that um and they're not curious um I really do believe that a mile in each crack size is how you get good at crack climbing um you can get very specific at a size but if you want just to be a really good all around crack climber you need to climb all the sizes you can't climb 513 off with and call yourself a good crack climber if you can't do a 510 finger crack um, and I, I know people like that um, they don't have any curiosity of like those thin sizes um, it's the same thing with me like I can't go into you know crack climbing and trad climbing and pursue really hard grades and ignore sport climbing or bouldering I do those enough like I eat my vegetables um, in order to be well rounded because hard trad climbing is very sporty. Even a roof crack. Like the moves on Mamba were kind of sporty in the thin sections. And I think that if I didn't sport climb at all or if I didn't boulder at all, like I don't think I would have had a chance to do that route. And so when I teach people, I try to teach them to have an open mind and a willingness to quote unquote fail, even though it's not actually failing. It's learning. You know, I want them to fall. I want them to hang. I want them to get on as many cracks of as many sizes as possible and 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 that's hard to get people on that train sometimes because you know they want to climb well in front of you they don't want to hang dog you know they only want to spend 10 minutes on a route and I'm like yeah well sometimes you need to be in that off with for an hour I'm sorry get in it (laughs) like put in the time and then the other big thing is teaching people footwork everybody's footwork is terrible (laughs) So, yeah, a lot of people focus on the hands, but really it all goes down to the feet. And it's that great thing that we don't want to, we don't want to acknowledge that footwork is king.
0: You also like, at least on paper on, I don't know how to put this, like the appearances that you're pretty specialized to climbing, um, kind of desert splitters and things like that. What are your horizons as far as, um, as far as trad climbing outside of that zone?
3: I'm in school full time, so I've stuck pretty close to home the last couple of years um, just for financial reasons, honestly. I mean, one day I would love to climb Greenspit, just things like that. I would love to climb Freerider, you know, I'm pretty open to anything. It's just as like, in my mind, can I structure my life around being able to attain that goal while also like feeding myself and, <laughs> like, you know. Providing for my future and everything, so it's like okay. Well, if I want to climb Green Spit, then I need to train for it, and then I need to fly over there, and then I need to give myself enough time. Is the job I work going to allow that, <laughs> or am I going to have to like structure some of these goals into maybe a sabbatical or whatnot? So I think for me, there's so many routes that I want to do that I'm going to choose the goals that make the most sense for what I can do with like my resources. So that's why I wanted to move back to Moab so bad. I've lived here for almost 10 years. I love this place. I'm very inspired by this place. And Tom and Pete said, there's almost 20, 13 and 14 roof cracks in the White Rim. Um, I wanna do those. I wanna do century crack. I wanna find another 14 crack down there. There is a lifetime of climbing just there in a place that I love the most. But I also want to go elsewhere and do some stuff.
0: You were immersed in the the Moab scene as a climber for a long time. Um, I have my own opinions about it um, that I've shared. Um,
2: But it's interesting (laughs) I don't know what those are.
0: (laughs) um, Yeah, well, (laughs) I don't know. I feel like it's kind of lazy. But... um, I mean, it's mostly people from outside there that come in and do things. And that's yes. what I was just thinking. It's like guys like Steve Haston were there to be looking around the white rim, you know, Tom and Pete, both from, you know, a completely other country. So is that just a coincidence? Why is it that these guys are the ones that are ferreting out these climbs down on the white rim um, I feel versus like, like hmm. people from who've who've been there for the longest time?
3: I feel like Moab has just too many good things going on. Honestly, uh, most of my climbing partners are people who visit, to be honest, because they're psyched. I feel like you get slack lines
0: in the park. Is that what you're getting at?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, (laughs) yeah, here's the thing. The lifestyle in Moab is so much fun. Why would you want to go suffer? It's definitely like a way more laid back, like way of life. Um, That's not to say it's like a, a blanket statement. There are people that try really, really hard that live here like. Lisa Hathaway and Steph Davis and Carl Kelly put in a lot of fucking work and you know there's there's like people who work really hard but they're not like the norm the norm is like hey we're going canyoneering or we're going rafting or we're going biking and the mountain biking is so good that's the thing all the activities of Moab are too good (laughs) so it's it's really hard I think to get that drive. And also Moab is so transient. It's people come here for two years and then they leave, you know, housing is hard. The job situation is hard. You know, it's just hard. It's expensive to be here. It's difficult to be here. People kind of hit a ceiling pretty quickly here and good people have to move away because they can't afford a house. So I think that just kind of contributes to it. For me, I have always had my eyes on the white rim, to be honest. I moved from Kentucky to Moab right after high school, and I started seeing a law enforcement park ranger at Canyonlands when I was 18, and he was older. Don't talk to me about it, <laughs> and I hadn't even learned how to rock climb yet. Like I did not know what rock climbing was, which is amazing that you can like live in Moab and not know what rock climbing is, but I didn't. But... My partner was a climber and I was kind of starting to understand it was like a sport, but he didn't really talk about it much. And he didn't go out climbing too much, but he mostly, I remember this one evening was complaining about these Brits that were causing a ruckus in the White Rim. (laughs) And I was like, oh, what is that? And they're like, oh, well, Mm. they did this, you know, this route called Century Crack and they made a plaque. And um, I'm so annoyed about it. I had to hike it out of there. It was so heavy. I had to like, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, why didn't he just take a picture of it? If it was a giant rock (laughs) instead of hiking it out. From the start, I was curious about the climbing that happened in the white room because it was the first real mention of like hard climbing that I'd heard of. It's actually kind of funny being such good friends with Tom and Pete now because I'm like I I dated the ranger that was mad at you guys back in the day. <laughs> Such well, a small it's, town.
0: <laughs> it's interesting because I want you know I I've been curious about that because Candylands is you know in my opinion and there's there's reasons for this um the most anti-climbing national park in the country. They've had a ban on bolts um and fixed anchors of all kinds, not just bolts, but any fixed anchors um, for, for decades at this point. And they definitely don't like people climbing in the park, like period, end of not, I mean, end of story. They don't like it. They put up with it because there's, you know, the, the anchors are there and things happen. But, um, so what, what has that been like for you and these guys? I mean, is there, I mean, you have to go down there, you have to spend the night. That's all troublesome. Um, because of regulations around the White Rim. And most people will know the white, white Rim from from the mountain biking. It's the famous 100-mile or so loop that you go down and, and ride across this this fairly flat, sedimentary plain that the bikes are basically riding over those cracks in, in some places almost. So, yeah, what's it been like as far as interfacing with the park down there for not just you but everybody?
3: Um, they really want climbers to follow the rules, and they have specific – Um, access rules. They do get frustrated when people take Indian Creek ethics to the White Rim and to the towers and the parks. Um, They get really frustrated and they have a long memory. For me, I worked as an interpretive ranger intern in Arches National Park in 2015. Um, So I have a relationship with the park service in this area. Like I've worked with them. I volunteered on search and rescue like back in the day. A lot of these people either know me or know of me or like they kind of vaguely remember me when I looked really nerdy. Um, I still do. So I even applied for artists in residence in the area. I can't remember what year that was. I got rejected because I didn't know how to sell my artwork, but I almost got it. So a lot of these people would remember me and I... Have been very honest about what I've been doing down there. I go to the backcountry office, and I say I want to do this route. This is where it is. I want to buy this camping permit. If you don't remember me, I worked here. Blah blah blah, and they're like, okay, you know how to treat the area like it needs to be treated. You know to use brown chalk. You know X Y and Z. I'm like, yes, you know, of course. And I've gotten feedback that you know the areas that I've left after I've been there look good. So it's like. I think by just making that effort and just being very honest about what you're doing it goes a long way. And that's, that's why, you know, it's, it's not been hard for me to climb there because maybe I am like, like extra careful. I, I'm kind of naggy. I'm like, no, I'm going to choose brown chalk. And it's hard because like you invite your friends to go into the white room with you and then they like pull out their white chalk bag and they're very attached to it like no (laughs) and then you're like scrubbing behind them getting rid of it and it's it's just little things like that you know like really trying to go that extra mile because they they do know where those routes are and they go and they look and it's like they can see that illegal bolt that got put in there by someone they can see where there's white chalk and tick marks left behind like or if you're burying your poop so you just have to go that extra mile and like If you get the backpacking permit to work these routes, you have to backpack in. You can't sneak and sleep in your car or do camping activities at the car. You kind of have to like do it the way you say you're going to do it and not try to get away with things. Um, I think that's from the conversation I've had. The Park Service, that's like their biggest frustration is climbers just trying to get away with shit and lie. Then that does hurt access, and they make it difficult. Yeah, but, at the,
0: <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I got to push back just a little bit. Is that, and and this isn't you because the whole reason we started, I started this, is because you don't like share that much media about it. But I mean, certainly the pressure on the area has, I mean, the the videos increase it, and 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 talking about it increases it, and maybe this article that you'll you'll put in in there will increase it. And I think the problem is, is that. I mean, acting like Indian Creek in the White Rim is is one way to put it, but it's also just logistically really difficult to be down there. It's, I mean, there's not very many permits and things like that, and you can... It's
3: a pain and, in the ass. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, I mean, I just think that, like, it's only going to get... There's only going to be more confrontation with, like you said, people, you know, sneaking around or, or doing what they have to do. I mean, partially because... They're trying to partially because of, you know, you go down there and it's like, you don't, I don't, I mean, I, I don't even know where you get brown chalk to, I mean, I guess it's a place in Moab, to your heads Mm -hmm. and it's terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, we all have to admit for some reason we can like, you know, put a man on the moon and and Amazon can (laughs) deliver packages like overnight all around the world, but we can't make like decent colored chalk. It's sort of weird, but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, it's just kind of like, it's sort of like, Yes everybody has to sort of like pay attention to the rules, but I think they're just, there's going to be a lot more pressure on it.
3: There is. And, you know, I've applied for the commercial filming permit down there. And that was like a point that was brought up was like, Hey, you make, you know, this film about it. um, People are going to want to come. And they really pushed against making a film, but it was actually the Candylands law enforcement um, that um, advocated for it. You know, they kind of had the thought that like the best people to educate climbers are climbers and that climbing is a legal and accepted activity down there. And the way I've treated that area, there's no reason to not like allow me further down the permit process. Um, So it's there's also the reality that like to get on the road, you have to have a four by four car legally. Otherwise, it's a ticket. And there's only so many permits per day there's only so many overnight backpacking permits they can be expensive um also finding the roots is difficult um some of them you have to abseil in they're also just to like, what like, <laughs> like repel oh, oh <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> some of them yeah um, um yeah for, we know who you've you been know, hanging out
0: with abseiling. i know <laughs> i know i know
3: so for six months of the year black mamba necronomicon century crack are closed for um birds and bighorn, sheep, lambing. And so it's like the window for climbing the roots is short. You have to have a four by four to get there. You have to have a permit to even drive down there. You have, you know, that eliminates like 95% of climbers. Also, you have to be willing to climb, you know, I think the easiest roof crack I've been to down there is 12 plus. So then you have to be willing to climb a 12 plus roof crack minimum that's also not easy it's also like a two and a half hour drive from moab so it's like a long drive too um most of them are 513 and up so it's it's not convenient and also when you climb it there's no anchors so you have to back aid everything um it's just a big pain in the butt so yes releasing media does increase traffic but it doesn't increase traffic with like like hordes or crowds of people it increases traffic of like somebody really really motivated who you know maybe didn't believe that this area was for them or that they didn't belong in that space or they're particularly inspired can find the resources and like go and do it or go and have those experiences themselves i really i feel like my time in the white rim is the best time of my life. And I don't think that I deserve to be the only one to have that experience. And so for me, it's important to share that with people who are really motivated.
0: Do you ever find yourself falling into that same old trope that climbing has no meaning that it's a useless, selfish game that helps no one? Well, On our latest Patreon bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, author and professor C.T. Nguyen sets up a philosophical top rope for us. Finally, concluding that climbing is one of the ultimate games, and games are essential to living, ergo, climbing is in fact the meaning
2: of life.
0: So, if you want to once and for all cast off the guilt of blowing off everything else to go climbing, Go to patreon.com slash Podcast and become a Rope Gun today. Receive teen wins, stimulating talk, and a lot more bonus material. Sometimes serious, often controversial, frequently hilarious, always extra. That's patreon.com slash Podcast to support the runout today. Dan Brown is a climber, composer, and multi-instrumentalist from Glasgow, Scotland. Many of his compositions are inspired by the unique climbing and landscape in the Scottish Highlands. The melody of the following tune, Nomad, was written on a Scotrail train after a great weekend of climbing. You can find Dan's eclectic music at danbrownmusic.bandcamp.com or follow him on Instagram at danbrown.music.
1: Just listen to another episode of the Run Out Podcast. If you like our show, the best way to support us is by giving us money. We don't care about iTunes ratings. You can share it with your friends or don't, whatever. But we are hundred percent listener supported because we believe this is the best way to stay independent, say what we think, and be accountable to the most important people in our lives, which is you, our listeners. To support our show, check us out on Patreon. It's Patreon.com/slash RunOutPodcast for as little as $5.14 a month, you can become part of the run out nation and get bonus episodes that will titillate your ear holes. Thanks for listening. and We'll see you next episode.